Okay, so like uh, most Washingtonians, I always make it a point to go tubing at least once a year near Harper's Ferry, right? We, ha we have to do that if we live here over the summer. So, of course, this year I went, which now feels like so long ago, and I went with two girlfriends, and I don't know, I've only been to two locations for this, but it seems maybe all of them are like this, and if so, I have no idea why. You go somewhere, and then you register, and then it seems like they take you an hour away to the actual river. Um, why they can't be closer together, I don't know, but that's what happened, and so you need to take a bus. And I was with my two girlfriends, and I've been on buses before, right? Normal. Uh, and I don't know what it was about this bus. Maybe it was the color. Maybe it was a scent. Something about it. As soon as I went to go step on this bus, a school bus, I was transported directly back to when I was in middle school. Immediately. See, when I was in middle school, I, um, I would ride the bus. And this is why I didn't ride the bus in high school. I insisted on being driven to school. People thought I was snotty. It was because I wanted to avoid bus situations like this. Uh, I would get on the bus, and the boys in my grade, and maybe like one ab like above and below me, uh, would, without any prompting, didn't matter if I was alone or with people, as soon as I got on the bus would scream things, and their favorite thing to scream at me was huge. And it was during that period of my life is when I discovered that there was something wrong with my body that I didn't know about. I wasn't told that anything was wrong with my body up until that point. Every single time, it didn't matter if it was in the morning or at night, and they always seemed to be waiting for me as I left school. Huge. The result of that situation, and many others in middle and high school, inspired my number one silent sermon. Over the last three weeks, we have looked at various different silent sermons that we preach to ourselves and offered up ways to change our personal narrative before they become absolutely destructive. We dedicated this mini-series to this because, without a doubt, it is not the sermons that we preach from this stage that will change our lives. It's the sermons that we preach to ourselves when we leave this space that will speak to us the most. And so as we close this series today, we are ending with the silent sermon that came out of that bus situation for me and stayed in control of my life for way too long. It's the silent sermon of shame. So before I tell you more embarrassing things about myself, let's pray so that I can do it. Lord, I praise you for everything that you have already done today. I praise you for the ways in which your heart has just penetrated through people. For the ways in which you have broken shame barriers already <laughs> just in the last few hours. I pray that over this space, Holy Spirit, I know you are here. I pray for you to move through the seats. Move through the aisles of this place. Protect the doors. Let no distractions come through. Let us all focus on what you have to tell us and truly leave here transformed. I thank you for this opportunity, Lord, and this space is yours. Whatever you want to do, do it. I love you so much. Amen. Okay, so what do we mean by shame? Well, the definition for shame from the dictionary is 
A painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. I don't know about you, but to me, it seems like a robot made that definition. Like, does anyone who's ever actually experienced shame, would they ever describe it as that? I went through so many different definitions online, trying to find something that fit for what I felt. And I didn't find it, so I made up my own. Shame. You are so bad, you should probably never interact with another human again. You'll just mess it up because you suck. (laughs) I'm thinking of submitting it to Webster's. This seems more appropriate, right? This is what we feel. Not this distress. No, it's an avalanche. It's awful. It makes us try to run and hide in the corner and never come back out. That's shame because you suck. And I want to make sure that we all know that this sermon is focused on shame and not on guilt. Because the difference between shame and guilt is, guilt is, I did something bad. And shame is, I am something bad. Right? Those are two different things. And this sermon is specifically about shame and not guilt because guilt really isn't inherently bad. Guilt is the natural human reaction we have when we have hurt or failed someone or something. And when dealt with in a healthy way, uh, it is the catalyst for confession and hopefully forgiveness. But when it's not dealt with, it opens the door for shame to move in and take over. Then our, our I did something wrong turns into I am something wrong. And from my experience, I think there are two types of shame. Um, shame that can come from something, from someone hurting us or someone putting shame on us. Uh, For instance, like how those boys on the bus and many other people in my life told me that my body was something to be ashamed about. And maybe body image issues aren't the the core of your shame story. Uh, Maybe for you, uh, the thing that was, the shame that was pushed on you was from trauma. Maybe it was from physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse. Maybe it was attacks on your sexuality or your identity. Maybe it was attack attack on your economic worthiness. Or maybe the attacks were on your entire personhood. There are some people who are born into families, and for whatever awful reason, those families have no idea how to love. And so, as a human being, they feel unwanted, completely. And to all of those stories and to the ones that I've missed, I am I'm so sorry. Like, I'm so sorry if any of that or your shame story is coming up right now and you can pinpoint the shame that spiraled for you. We weren't, we weren't meant for that. <laughs> That's not what our loving God had intended for your life. And shame is not your responsibility to bear regardless of what anyone says. Hurt hurts. So when people don't know healthy ways how to get out of their own shame, they project it onto others. The disease of shame can't help but try to ensnare every single person, and not even an aspect of their identity, all of their identity. It doesn't just stop when it gets one piece of you. It wants all of you. And the second way that shame enters our lives is through undealt with guilt, like we mentioned. It's the shame that that really does haunt us because we have sinned against someone or something and we've just completely avoided it. We have not sought resolution for it in any way. 
And so it follows us and digs deeper. And from my experience, this often stems from having a limited view of God and a limited view of what the cross actually means. We hear scripture like Psalm 103, that God has removed our sins as far as from the east is to the west, and we still don't believe they're gone. We hear that Jesus went to the cross specifically for us, and we still don't believe that our sins are forgiven. And so we keep it. We don't share it. And we allow shame to grow. And many of us, myself included, have thought in the past that our darkness is too much for God, that we can't bring it to him. And we forget that our darkness is already known by God. (laughs) And we think we're hiding something that is in plain sight. And this type of shame is what I call the Adam and Eve shame, which we'll hear about in a minute. And the odd thing is, is that shame has been around basically since the beginning of creation. And, and so you think at this point in our lives, we'd have a better and more standardized treatment for it, right? Considering it impacts so many people. But unless I'm wrong, I feel like it only became a cultural conversation uh, when Brene Brown did the TED Talk to end all TED Talks, right? That was it. Then we're like, oh, right, that awful feeling I've been carrying all my life. That's, that's what it is. You named it. Finally, someone said it. That's when we started talking about this. People have been carrying this garbage around for this long, loading it onto themselves. And I think... The reason that we struggle, the reason that we don't have this standardized way of dealing with it is because it's the number one tactic of the enemy. I'll die on that fact. The number one thing the enemy, the accuser wants to do to us is heap shame onto us. That's it. If he can do that, he's got us all. He doesn't need us to do anything else. That's it. And creating shame in humans started in the garden. Genesis, the first book of the Bible, opens up with this dreamy garden scene. God creates the plants and the air and the sea and the animals and the humans. And there we get Adam and Eve. And we see in Genesis 2.25 states, Adam and his wife, Eve, were both naked and they felt no shame. So things seem to be going pretty well, right? I mean, they're comfortable enough to walk around naked, so they must have felt like home. I know y'all walk around naked. It's okay. And the second part of that statement is super important for us. That could have said anything. And they felt no fear. And they felt no question about their self-image or their self-worth. And that one probably would have made more sense considering they were walking around naked. But no, it was, and they felt no shame. And right there tells us exactly why even though we've known shame for so long, it still hurts us so deeply. It's because we were never supposed to know it. It was not a part of our design. It was not a part of God's plan for us at all. So when it enters our system, it acts like a poison, shutting us down until we are completely defeated, just like it did with Adam and Eve. Because when God put them in the garden, he said, okay, you two, everything, all of of the things you see are for you, except this one tree over here, okay? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't touch that one. And they're like, got it. They didn't get it at all. 
Because what happens? It doesn't take long for the serpent. I think it's the beginning. Yeah, the beginning of chapter 3. The serpent comes around. And he's talking to Eve. And he's like, so about that tree? Eve's like, yeah, we can't touch it. That's the one that's off limits. And he's like, what? You're not going to die if you touch that tree. He's like, you know why God doesn't want you to touch that tree? Because if you do then you'll know just as much as he does. You'll know all good and all evil, and he doesn't want you to know that. So don't touch it. I mean, don't avoid it. Go for it. And so she goes and takes an apple or whatever fruit it was, and she shares it with Adam. And they both eat it, and then they're like, oh, we're naked. Now I know what naked is. It's not great. So what did they do? They picked up fig leaves. And they went and they hid in God's garden. They hid, right? And then we see their shame exposed in Genesis 3, 8 through 13. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from that tree that I commanded you not to? The man said, well, she told me to do it, so yeah. And then he looks at Eve and he goes, what did you do? And she goes, well, actually it was the snake. Push it away from themselves while they're standing there like this. And this exchange shows us so much You can feel, feel the sadness in God's voice when he asks, where are you? Where did you go? I'm here. Where are you? And followed it up with, uh, who told you? Who told you that? I never told you you were naked. Who told you that? Just complete and utter heartbreak by Genesis 3. And the first heartbreak of all in scripture is the Lord's. And just like God's reaction to their shame is not like a parent's heartbreak for their children, right? When we, I don't, again, I say we, I have a dog. um, But (laughs) I'm very disappointed and sad when she doesn't live up to her high. You know, she's so great. And then she'll do something and I'll be like, you're better than this. (laughs) So I imagine that's what parents feel right? So just like a parent or a dog parent uh, feels this pain when something goes wrong with their children, when they've gone astray, this was happening in the garden with God. And the thing is, Adam and Eve's reaction to shame is not unlike our own, right? What did they do? They covered themselves or covered their shame, which became their bodies, and then they hid, They covered themselves in fig leaves. We all have fig leaves. We read this story in the garden and separate ourselves, but we behave the exact same way. Nothing has changed. We cover our shame up with the hope that one, no one will see it, and two, that it'll just go away. Mm -mm. It just grows. And there's this shame-based mindset that we we try to to keep at bay by performance, especially in a town like this. 
completely on performance. We hide behind our accolades and our jobs and our degrees. And then when we realize that despite our best efforts, the disease of shame still takes over, our thinking then becomes worst case scenario. That you're not going to jump out of this position, you're not going to jump out of this lane because if you do then you'll be exposed. You're not going to be as smart as people think you are. They're going to realize that you actually don't know as much. They're going to realize that you're weak. So stay. Shame loves that. Keep you where you are. And then we find our identity in those things because if we don't have that protecting us, we'll be exposed and everyone will see us for who we really are. And will they still like us? Even in this situation, God has a better covering for them. They come with these little fig leaves and God's like, I'm so mad at you right now. I'm so mad. But you can't go out to this cruel world with fig leaves. You're not going to get far. So he gives them even a better covering. He said, this is the first time we see an animal slaughtered so that they could be wearing the skins to stay warm. And this struggle of performance is interesting because I think the church does it the best. We, we try to be so great and so Christian and so fake and it's, what? No. It doesn't get us anywhere. We pretend so much in the church. And the problem with pretending is that we get really good at it. And then everything just becomes a performance and that's it. And we're left with this hollow shell. But the thing is, God knows our hearts. And he's telling us, you don't need to pretend anymore. Drop it. I already know what you look like naked. And it's cool. I still love you. Robert. (laughs) And they hid in the garden, right? They hid in the garden that God created. Everyone has a hiding place. Like I said, you could hide behind your job. Um... But oftentimes, shame in general causes us to hide behind things that are more instant. So this is where we see substance abuse. This is where we see drug abuse in general. We see this instant high to be able to separate you from whatever it is you're running from. And you can mentally go, and it'll be waiting for you again and again and again. It doesn't get you anywhere. It's just a cycle. But at least it takes you from where you are for the moment. That's what we do. We're so prideful that we don't want to admit that we need the Lord. Need him so badly. And all of this, regardless of how you hide or how you cover up, leaves God asking the same question. Where did you go? I did not leave you. Where did you go? But when we choose that all so predictable route, Uh, When we cover ourselves up, when we hide, what actually happens to us then? We spiral. That's it. Shame spirals. Um, So like I said, those boys in 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, a little bit into high school uh, were constant. uh, Constant issues. And because I was bullied so much for my weight, I, um, I, it was a really bad day when I figured out what eating disorders were. 
because uh, it was super easy then to just start puking all the time. And then all of a sudden, I had the physical appearance that happened to be attractive to people, or these group, this group of people. And so what did I do? I fixed whatever they thought the problem was, but I just made everything worse. Because I sat with that. And then, because I thought that that's what I could offer, I could offer me being this way, I gave them what they wanted. I did this over and over again, just constantly destroying my self-worth with one guy after the next. And then, I specifically remember when I was in, like I just graduated college, and I had a boyfriend, and I, it was very new. You know what, maybe he didn't even consider me his girlfriend. I don't even know. Um, but we, <laughs> we dated. And I remember, I was like, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have sex with him because that's what I'm supposed to do and I've got to keep him because that, I've got to keep up this ruse of whatever I'm doing to make it look like I'm in a healthy relationship and I can do this and this is normal. And I love myself, right? And I did it and I remember, I remember feeling, every time we had sex, I remember feeling this is not how it's supposed to be. I don't know exactly, but I know that this is not how it's supposed to be. And after that, I, I told myself, that's it. You have spiraled. You have moved away from any type of self-worth um, that I could even recognize or even count as self-worth at that time. And I just stopped. I stopped dating. I, I removed myself because it's wild that all of this started with boys teasing me. And it just went until it took all of me. And so I stopped dating. I took time off because I, if I didn't do it, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where I'd be today. I was saved because of that decision. I was brought into a different space, a different mentality because of that decision. It saved my life to say, I've got to stop doing this because I'm destroying myself. That didn't mean that I walked away from there loving myself, but it just meant that I was taking a conscious step to try to mitigate the problem. Where does your shame spiral take you? I know it's deep. I know it probably doesn't make sense if you were to look at the beginning to the end. They probably have no connection anymore because they're so far separated, but somehow very connected. On this stage, about a year and a half ago, maybe a little more, I spoke about shame for the first time in this church, and I didn't tell that story the best. I told other stories of the impact that that bullying had on me and I stood up here and I was so proud I was so proud because I um I hadn't felt those horrible feelings about my body in many many years and I stood up here really boldly and and told everyone that and this past January out of nowhere my feelings of body shame and low self-worth came back in a frightening way so fiercely, uh, every single day it occupied my mind, it occupied every single decision I was making. But here's the thing, I was no longer little Angela. I was no longer going to let it take me from here and go all the way over here and destroy relationships, self-worth along the way. 
I said, I don't care how long it takes me to put you back in your box, but we're not moving from this space. I can't do it again. And so what I did was I focused on this one issue. It took me a few months this year. Focused on this one issue to get control of it again. And I refused to let it move past there. Because now I knew more. Now I knew the one who could help me so that my shame spiral did not take over my body again. I refused to hide behind it and let it take over. And before we get into the process for controlling shame, I want to address the idea of completely ridding ourselves of shame. Now, I don't know, you, you, I, I know this answer. You don't sit around and Google sermons on shame. I do that. Um, so, but if you ever do, and you, you'll see that you'll probably come across a lot of sermons that talk about, well, this is what you need. You need Jesus, and then good. No. I mean, come on. They, they, they think that knowing Jesus will take away shame and it'll never come back. And what I think they actually mean is sin. Yes, that's true about sin, but sin and shame are not the same things. And I get very frustrated when I hear that, that pe- when people say that to know Jesus means to be shame-free. Yeah, perhaps that'll happen in eternity. I mean, okay, take that back. It better happen in eternity. But that's not an expectation here. And this is where the devil roams. So it's not that likely that it's just going to disappear. And don't get me wrong, I believe the God of wonders can do absolutely anything. And so if God has permanently taken away your shame over a situation or an issue in your life, amazing. Absolutely amazing. But that just does not happen to be my situation. And that's okay. I'm not mad at God for that. When people profess that a relationship with Jesus will forever take away our shame, this side of Eden, that to me is the equivalent of saying that if you know Jesus, sin just disappears from your life. And what people don't often want to admit is that so many times when we become followers of Jesus, our lives actually get worse because we're going against the culture. (laughs) I mean, just look at the disciples, if we need an example of that. Because now the accuser has something to try and stop. When we were going with the status quo, it didn't matter. We were doing it on our own. But now that we're actually trying to focus somewhere else, trying to focus to bring heaven to earth, that's where it comes in. That's why. So just because we can't completely remove shame from this earth does not mean we let it consume us. And the thing is, Jesus is an absolutely necessary part of our armor against shame. Trying to combat shame without Jesus is a losing game. 100%, every single time. Because Jesus gives us the power to put shame back in its box where it belongs. Shame cannot last in the presence of Jesus. It can't. We make it small again. We move it. It might come back tomorrow. Then we tell it again to go home. It is through that truth that we get to look at shame and boldly declare, not today. So what does tangibly controlling shame look like? Well, we reveal it to push it out into the open. We fill then its space with truth. And then we repeat it. I know that third point is very disappointing. I'm so sorry, but that's exactly what we need to do. That's the only way to do it. 
So we reveal it. Shame wants to keep us from other people, to believe that our shame is too much, or we could never be like them, or they're not going to understand our shame, so we might as well not even try. So we put it in, inside and put ourselves in the corner. But when we reveal our shame to the Lord, he will reveal grace. There's not a moment that I talk about my shame that I do it alone. Absolutely not. Our darkness is not too much for him. And I know you think that I don't know your story, but if you need to hear more of my shame spiral in order for you to feel better about sharing yours, give me a call. I'm happy to share more things. Whatever it is that's going to pull you out, I'll do it. Because we all need to get to that space. We all need to expose it. It hates to be exposed. It loses power. And there's this beautiful illustration of that in uh, Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 43. There's this woman who has this blood issue. She's hemorrhaging for majority of her life, majority of her adult life. And she can't get any help. Physicians cannot help her. And she hears that Jesus has come to town. And the thing is, not only is she a woman, people, a woman, people really didn't like women. So... Um, she already was one down. And then she was bleeding a lot. God, what's worse, you know? So she stayed in her home, most likely. She, how could she ever had any friends? How could she go out? How could she be a part of society? But she hears that Jesus is coming. She hears. And so what she does is she pushes through the crowd just to touch his cloak. That's it. That's all she knows. She's so faithful that she knows that even touching him will heal her. And Jesus, he could have in that moment healed her, which he did, and just moved on without saying anything. He could have been like, oh, it's the woman with the blood thing. All right, we'll keep it quiet. No. He said, who did that? And he called her out to the open. And he said, because of your faith, you are healed. And he showed everybody around her, all these people who probably didn't think she was worthy enough to stand in his presence or even on the street at all, and said, look who Jesus cares about. Her faith, regardless of her circumstances, made her come out to Jesus. She knew. It's this beautiful way to push her shame right out to the open, to the feet of Jesus. And he comes back and he says, I'm going to put it in the open too because I'm going to show you that shame has no place here. You are healed. Go and walk free. He didn't ignore the fact that this bleeding woman touched him with no words. He wanted to address her. Shame wanted to keep her in her home. But Jesus... <laughs> the answer to everything but Jesus and when I was younger I didn't share anything because I thought it was safer I even like would be known to just leave situations where I thought these boys would be hanging out and I would go walk around the block by myself which in hindsight probably wasn't safe um, but I would leave and leave parties to go be by myself because I was so afraid that these boys were going to get bored and just start making fun of me in front of everybody so being alone was better so I'd leave I hid because I thought that was safe, but really, it's just lonely. That's all it is. We, we think our shame is so unique that people can't understand it, but the thing is, when one person starts sharing, most often, instead of rejection, what we're going to hear is a me too. The amount of me too's I have already heard today from people who not only have shame issues, but the exact same issues that I've struggled with, 
just this afternoon, we need to talk about this more because then it loses its power. And that's what I did this year when all of those awful thoughts started flooding back into my head. I told people what I was feeling. (laughs) I verified it and they're like, that's garbage. I was like, I know it's garbage. Can you tell me every day that it's garbage, please? Because that's what I need to hear. I cast it out into the open so that I could breathe. And this is so important, everyone. After that space is freed in you, after you move that shame out, even for the day, you need to immediately replace it with truth. Immediately. Because if you don't, another shame lie will sink in. 100%. It's waiting to. So you replace it with truth. You replace it with what Jesus says about it. You tell yourself that you are beloved. You tell yourself that if he had 99 and you went missing, he would leave the 99 to go look for you. You remind yourself that not only does he love you, he died for you. He loves you that much. That's how badly he wants to be with us. Who or what we let speak into our lives is one of the most important decisions we will ever make. So we need to fill that space with truth so we know that we can verify that the one who is telling us these things is from the one who loves us above all else. And then we get up and we repeat it. The same way we need to wake up every single day and decide that we're going to follow Jesus again, we need to wake up and clothe ourselves in honesty and truth. Controlling shame is a daily exercise. It just is. I'm sorry that's disappointing, but it is. Because the mirror will be waiting for us. Those failed expectations will be waiting for us. Everything will be waiting for us to tell us that we suck. And remember, this is the one thing we were not created to know. We were never created to know shame. That's why the accuser puts it on us. When you're trying to stop the people of God, the one thing you can do to them is put on the one thing that is so foreign that it just attacks them. Daily. Any plans to control shame that do not have Jesus at the center will fail. We can't do it on our own. So as you leave here today, reveal your shame. Fill that shame gap with truth. And the thing is, I, just to show you, I read Proverbs every single day because there's a chapter for every single day of the month. And so it's super easy. It's like a built-in devotional in the Bible. And so, but this morning as I was prepping, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to read Proverbs this morning. I'm already sermoning. That's enough holy for the day. Like, I don't, I don't have time. And throughout the entire writing process, my favorite proverb has been in my head because this is what I, I think shame does. It's Proverbs 13.20. It says, walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. And that's what I think of shame companion of fools, because it's not just one piece of you, it's all of these pieces that it wants. And so it brings in all of its weird, goony friends, and they take over. Walk with the wise and become wise. And it's been all over me as I write this. And uh, another thing about me, I'm really bad at dates and also the weather. Don't ever ask me about the weather because I don't look at it. And I didn't know what date it was today either. And so I open up my book, and of course, it's the 13th. And no joke, I'm reading it, and I I was like, God, okay, I'll read this first few, like right here, because I don't have time. And so I was only going to read one side of Proverbs. I'm revealing way too much about my limitations, but I was only going to read the first page of Proverbs, and then I I was told very clearly, turn the page. 
And as I turn the page, the number one giant bold highlighted is Proverbs 13.20, staring me back in the face. And I just started laughing. Y'all, no matter how good we think God is, I guarantee he is better. Cares about absolutely everything. He's been all over this day. He's been all over the hearts of the people hearing about shame, calling them out, freeing them from whatever is trying to control them. Reveal your shame, fill that gap, and wake up and do it again. Because the sermons we preach to ourselves are the most important sermons we will ever hear. And it is in the mighty name of Jesus that we get to cast shame back in its corner, even if we have to do it daily. It is in that name that we get to look at the shame that causes envy, fear, and low self-worth. And instead of running wild in our hearts, we get to say, absolutely not. Not today. Go find something else. You're not welcome here. And so in that spirit, I would like to take a moment to pray just a prayer of boldness and freedom over all of us here, myself included. So please join me. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for every single person who came here tonight, even if they didn't want to come, Lord, I thank you that they came. I thank you that they, they're sitting through this sermon, Lord, and I pray that whatever peace that the accuser has put in their heart as this shame corner that is occupying any piece of them, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you gently and sweetly reveal that to them, that you show them that this is not for them. This was not a burden for them to carry. This is not part of their creation. This is not a part of their body. Let them trust you to release it. Let them know that you love them so much that no sin can keep you from them. Whatever it is, Lord Jesus, I pray that they feel just incredibly bold to come to your throne, incredibly bold to release whatever it is that's weighing them down, and let them walk away in freedom from you, knowing that they can bring the same burden to you tomorrow and you will do it again. We love you and we trust you. In your name we pray. Amen.